0: Is called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about what in was the inspiration oh. for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was, what was the genesis? Mm-hmm. Was I used to be you, almost dependent be, on voice. A speaker a poem. I want to talk to you, <laughs> and the conversation starts. Hello, welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University Writing Community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and talk with us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. On this episode of Off the Page, Stegner Fellow Jackson Holbert shares a selection of poems. Jackson Holbert was born and raised in eastern Washington, His first book, Winter Stranger, won the 2022 Max Ritvo Prize and is forthcoming from Milkweed Editions. His work has appeared in Poetry, Field, The Nation, Narrative, Colorado Review, Alaska Quarterly Review, Copper Nickel, The Iowa Review, and multiple editions of Best New Poets. He received his MFA in Poetry from the Michener Center for Writers and is currently a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford. He has received fellowships from the Michener Center for Writers, the Stadler Center for Poetry, and the Sewanee Writers' Conference, and has been a finalist for the Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellowship.
1: This first poem is called World War I Poem. I've been writing a couple different poems about World War I recently. I'm still not exactly sure why, why I care about it, so much. It's sort of the last war that we get a distinctive poetry out of. So that's probably part of it, at least. So, World War I poem. Everything depends on boys who know nothing, who can barely make their beds, who still need their mothers to do almost anything. The country depends on them. Senators, kindergartners, music teachers depend on them. Those boys standing in the rain, the creases in their hats filling almost comically with water. Once the photograph is taken, the boys walk away. They sit alone on barrels, museum steps, or lean against the faces of brick buildings. This is the real shot. The boys mulling around, quiet. Even from this far away, it's clear they won't last long. These boys in their autumn coats and shined shoes. It's clear that something has already gone terribly wrong. Something only dead boys can fix, and thousands of them. The second poem is also called World War One poem. Another reason why I started working on poems about World War I is... Because I read a book called The Great War and Modern Memory, which talks a lot about how contemporary language is created by these shifts in language that happened around the First World War. And a lot of it is also talking about the fundamental relationship between war and language. There's a great quote from it where... The author paul fussell just says all wars are ironical because all wars are worse than people imagined so this is the second and last world war one poem all through the war there's no singing then one day everyone's singing and we are unprepared the friends of the dead we who wake now without reason while all about us cars fly by sailing little flags little stupid flags, while children sing through the broken windows of provincial churches. Everyone knows that the bones go away faster without marrow, that a god outmoded and outdefined cannot manage every fixture of the day and so gives each day allotments of sound, light, pain, meaning when there were great bombardments the whales went silent. When whole regiments raised their rifles to the sky and fired hopelessly at scouting planes, someone, dying alone, suddenly found himself unable to scream. And the sound that's left after that, the thin ribbons not eaten up by weapon fire, move through us in waves, miracle waves, dread waves, and the gone feel nothing, say nothing, which means the children can sing a little louder. This next poem is called The Water Poem. Somewhere north of here, my uncle grinds an oxycodone into a thousand red granules. Somewhere north of here, my uncle is dead and dark thunderheads force the pleasure craft ashore. I can make it all sound so beautiful. You'll barely notice that underneath this poem, there is a body decaying into the American ground. I can say clear coat, burn ward. I can say pleasure craft all night long. I can make his life, or my life, or your life remarkable if you give me a notebook and a few unstructured days. I can make it mean so much. But I'm done with all that. I've done death's handiwork before. This time, I'm coming home. I swear this isn't all about water, although I know it may come off that way. There's something to the river's indifference. What else would let in a baby but keep out the lightning? When I was a baby, I almost died. It didn't have anything to do with the river, but it did have something to do with my uncle. While my dad and I were visiting him in the courtyard of the Airway Heights Correction Center, I dawdled away, unnoticed, from the lines of visiting families, the guards with their small-gauge shotguns, and pulled a black mushroom from the tall grass and ate it. At the hospital, they pumped my tiny stomach for 37 minutes. Outside, the rain started going crazy, and by the time we left through the automatic exit doors, my parents were so worried the bridge would wash out that we sat in the car for five hours with the country station on. But that's all fire under the bridge. It's only now that I realize I've written so many poems with rivers inside of them and never even mentioned history, how it determines everything, and how it is what the water displaces first. Rivers don't remember anything. That's what makes them rivers. This next poem is called Moth, and it's after a poem that my friend Chessie Normile wrote. So, Moth. It would be nice to hear you say that maybe the microphones have been on the whole time, that the rooms we walked through years ago picked up our conversations, that not everything was lost just after it was said. The next poem is also an after poem. It's after the poet C.D. Wright, who was one of the great Southern poets of the last 50 or 60 years. And this is not necessarily taking any language directly from C.D. Wright, but it's sort of in the spirit of one of her poems. So, after C.D. Wright, I need a curtain and some lemonade spiders for friends and a nice lawn to have my visions on. I should have never let that church buy my father's piano for slightly under market value. I should have taken the contents of my mother's fridge when I had the chance. I would be thin no longer nor young if I had done the things I should have done. If the best among the least of all the trees I planted long ago to brace the hillsides against strong rain still stand after this spring, I'll fill my best glass with water and put on a little music. The next poem is called Dream Where the Men Are in My House Eating My Food and stealing my ideas. It's not a great title, admittedly. It's the longest title I've probably ever written, so that's something. Here's the actual poem. The men smell like watches, but they wish they could steal goats. Their mothers smell like watches, too. It was one of those men who woke me, gently, with a hand on which he did not wear his watch. He led me downstairs. Eight other men were arguing around the dinner table about the hiring practices of the Home Depot on 4th and Broadway. There was a ninth in the corner reading the biggest newspaper I'd ever seen. It was a kind of morning where you just knew there'd be ice hanging all over the trees. Later, the tallest one told me he thinks it's funny that if he hits me hard enough, I won't ever make it back to Tennessee. So I've been trying to figure out how to write short poems in these past couple months, which has not been going particularly well. And whenever I try to write a short poem, it just turns into a funny poem. Um, And funny poems can be good, but it's a problem I've been trying to confront. So this is a short poem that is sort of funny, I hope at least. It's called Hammer's Poetica. It's about writing. I've never had trouble writing. I've just had trouble sitting. No one ever has trouble swinging a hammer. The problem is what do you swing it at and in whose company? Some people talk to their hammers. I don't. But some people are into that kind of thing. I barely talk at all, especially in front of my hammer. This is a poem sort of in a similar vein in that it completely goes off the rails at some point. So this is I Am Seventeen. I have a lot to say. My mother was around all the time back then, always walking in and out of rooms carrying stacks of laptop computers. She spent most of her daylight hours blowing dust out of circuits, fans, motherboards, daughterboards. Sometimes her little canister would die and she'd have to use her mouth. My father was gone all day, every day, getting repetitive stress injuries at the newspaper. He was a journalist and everyone hated him, even his friends. Nothing really happened during my entire childhood, so he ended up spending most days shooting paper football through a miniature goalpost he kept in the locked drawer of his desk. He was rarely kind, and in the few short instances he was, it still didn't seem like it. Something about his mouth made everything he did seem either sinister or inept. He was completely inscrutable except for a period in the spring of 2004 when he was just sad. I was young that year, and my sister was a little older. She came home from college for the whole summer of 2005. I was 14. She told me not to worry about other people, not to worry about war, not to worry about a thing. That was the greatest summer of my short life. I had no friends. I had people I talked to at school, but once summer hit, it was like every school bus had crashed headfirst into a wall except the one that was carrying me and my silver trumpet. I had that tall kind of joy you can only feel when your bones still have another few inches left in them. My sister and I would watch three movies a day and never go to the lake. Everybody says it seems like summer never ends until it does, but that's a lie. I knew so little back then, but the one thing I did know was that all my friends were coming back, and I would once more join them in the hallways, and the classrooms, once more join them for hours after school in the far part of the parking lot, and would continue to do so until I turned 16 and got a job cutting my fingers on the cheese grater at the pizza factory. After that, everything was all work, 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 go home, Jeremy, get your feet off the sofa, Jeremy, work, work, math, homework, band-aids, and on a good day, a little trumpet, and on the best days, all trumpet. I wanted my life to be about music, but in the end, it was about getting bees and subjects such as Spanish. I don't know. Sometimes it feels like those summers really did never end. They went on forever and just got progressively worse. We like to pretend that one day we just walk into our adulthood like a congressman walking into the ocean, but we all know that's not true. What really happens is we walk into the same building day after day, but every night some crew comes in and replaces something little, a lamp housing, the chair of a conference table, until nothing is the same, until the building is not as we remembered it at all, until the building is stronger, up to code, but a lot less fun, and the lighting, the lighting is fluorescent and obscene. This next poem is the last poem I'll be reading, and it goes off the rails even more than the previous two. It's called My Field Trip to the Animal Shelter, and it's in the voice of a kid. And I've been writing for years, sort of poems and the voices of kids. It's a difficult thing for me to do, at least. It's sort of a task that requires a a real speed to the thought. They're sort of ADHD poems almost. And I have sort of a long conspiracy theory about that children's logic actually mirrors group logic in certain ways, that an individual sort of adult rational actor is more rational than a child. But When groups of rational people get together, irrational things happen, and that actually mirrors child logic more than adult rational logic. So, with that being said, my field trip to the animal shelter. We are on a field trip to the animal shelter, but we still have to do the Pledge of Allegiance. So they put up a little flag in the dog part of the animal shelter, and we all put our hands over our hearts, but the dogs are facing away from the flag. In every single one of our heads, big, expensive jets are flying in the sky. And in some people's heads, there are B-2 Spirit bombers flying too. But that is a stealth plane. And how are you supposed to know if a stealth plane is above you? Stealth planes can fly over 80,000 feet high. That is 2.5 times Mount Everest. My history teacher tried to climb Mount Everest. He took a lot of time off from school to do it. But he died, and they can't even bring his body back. And get this, his wife substituted for him, and she didn't even miss a day when he died? Sounds fishy, right? It wasn't. Do you know why? Because it wasn't his wife. The woman was lying about being his wife, and the man never went to any of the school's social functions, so no one knew what his wife looked like. His wife could have been the president, for all we know, but I know that she is not the president, because I was in the class, and she looks a bit like the president. And I asked her, I said, Mrs. Stevenson, are you the president? And she said, of course I'm not the president. Why would the Secret Service let me out of their sight? And I said, you sound like a president. And she said, just wait. When you grow up, you'll learn that everyone sounds like the president. And I said, how does that make sense? And she said, when we're dead, we're all the president. And I said, that doesn't make any sense. Isn't God the president when we're dead? And she said, no, God is the prime minister. And he does hold all the power. But the presidency of heaven is a purely ceremonial title that everyone holds. And I said, Mrs. Stevenson, are you an angel? You sound like an angel. And she said, no way. I'm Mrs. Stevenson. I grew up in rural Illinois. Would an angel grow up in rural Illinois? And I said, didn't President Lincoln grow up in rural Illinois? And she said, yes. And I said, Mrs. Stevenson, I don't think you are an angel anymore. I think you are President Lincoln. When I said this, I saw a slight terror cross her face like a train that is going super fast. She said, I don't have a beard. And I said, beards can be shaved. And she said, I'm not dead. And I said, I didn't see Lincoln die. He could still be alive for all I know. And she said, okay, you got me. And I called the police and they put her in jail because having two presidents is illegal. That's how countries fall. One day you have one president and the sunshine smells totally normal. And the next day you have two presidents and the sunshine smells like smoke and the planes are flying over people's heads for real. And the radio is yelling and children like me are hiding in underground bunkers while the adults are killing each other above us. But what they don't get is that that won't help. They don't understand that all they're doing is making more presidents.
0: Hey, Jackson. Thank you for being here on Off the Page. I think the first thing I want to ask is, it seems like most of these poems that you shared are new ones. Are any of them
1: from your forthcoming collection? yeah most of those are from the collection. The first two World War One poems are in there. The water poems in there, the dream c d Wright, and the Moth poem are all in there but the the ones near the end are either new ones or ones that I just could not, for the life of me fit into the book, so it's sort of half and half interesting,
0: yeah, and I could see. There are very different kinds of poems in this in this assortment. But to start, maybe since you started with the World War I poems, could you talk a little more about how you got interested in that time period and what the differences are between writing a more research-based poem versus something that maybe is derived from experience or observation?
1: Yeah, I do a lot of research-based work now just because... I've never found work that's derived from personal experience entirely all that interesting. I was also just a a huge history nerd as a kid, and I feel like I'm at a point finally with poems where I can channel other things that I care about and put those in the poems as well. I think when I'm writing a more personal poem, I just sort of go at it and see what happens, whereas with the research-based poems, I sort of have to acquire everything I need and then just go for it after I feel like I have all the material built up, because the last thing I want to do is have to stop during that drafting process and go look something up that sort of ruins the magic of it for me.
0: It seems as if a lot of your poems, not just the World War ones, but also the water poem and in a way, moth as well in this much briefer way, are interested in memorializing things, how things get recorded, how history gets recorded or doesn't. Could you talk a little bit about your interest in either interrogating acts of memorialization or contributing to some memorialization in what you write
1: about? Yeah, I think a large part of my work is certainly invested in memorializing in one way or another. And there's a interest, I think, in what gets recorded and what doesn't and the sort of arbitrariness of that and what that arbitrariness leads to in our own memories. And I think a lot of that interest in what is being recorded also comes from that early obsession I have with history, which is obviously all about being what's recorded, what isn't recorded. And with the poems, I feel like you're allowed to have the imagination fill in those gaps. So you're reading about soldiers in World War One, and the actual text— can't give you a full sense of what's going on. And I think poems maybe can give us a slightly better sense of, if not what's going on, then at least the silences and lives around what is going on. The other sort of non-research-based poems that are doing that moralizing work, the water poem is probably the primary example. That's just sort of me thinking in my own life what I remember, what I don't. I mean, there's a part in that poem that I can't have remembered because I was a baby. So that's sort of what I'm being told about my own life that I have no way of remembering. And it's also to an extent thinking about what it means to be aware of that and what it means to think about that in your daily life in just what is going on around you. I don't really know if that's a normal thing. I remember when I was like 17, I'd be in a car with my friends and I'd be listening to some new metal song and I'd have this distinct feeling that I need to remember it. And I'd try to sort of look at every detail of the scene and memorize it. And I still remember those scenes really well, but I have absolutely no idea if that is a normal thing or a completely abnormal weird thing. I think that distinct feeling of something meaningful happening and the need to put that inside of your head and keep it there is fundamentally connected to poetry, which is all sort of harkening back to these ideas of poetry as memory, even famously like the Odyssey and the Iliad and the epics. A lot of the poetic devices in there are there. So the orator can work their way into remembering things, into remembering what they memorized.
0: Yeah. I would imagine that thing you were talking about at 17, that sense of impermanence and that desire to hold on to things, that sense of time passing. I'm sure everyone feels a version of it, but it seems pretty writerly to me. That desire to want to get things down before they vanish and that awareness that you write about in I am 17, you know, knowing that in fact summer will end. That feels like a writer's consciousness, so I wanted to talk about the water poem a little bit. I really love the breaking of the fourth wall and the drawing attention to the madeness of the poem and the and the poet saying like if I have a notebook in a few unstructured days, I can make all this tragedy and waste and loss sound beautiful and beautiful and lyrical, but I don't want to do that anymore. I'm curious, did the poem start with that feeling of impatience with certain poetic practices, or is that something that came up in the writing about, say, you know, an uncle or a memory about the mushrooms or something else?
1: The water poem is actually one of the really, really rare poems I've written because of an assignment. Usually I get assigned a prompt or something, and I just cannot do it. And it turns out terrible. And the more I revise it, it only gets worse and worse. But I was in a class with Natasha Trethaway and it was all about writing nonfiction poems, writing about documentary or just personal poems. And I kept sort of pushing back against that a tiny bit. And finally, she just said, Jackson, you got to turn in a poem to me that is completely nonfiction. And then we'll talk about it. And we'll see if it's working or not. And I wrote this. And this came out. So there is that resistance that you can see in that first stanza But that resistance ended up working really well for the poem. I feel like it's a poem you have to fight to get into. And in retrospect, I was really, really grateful to be pushed on that. I feel like teachers don't push students all that often, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But some really talented teachers know exactly when someone needs a push. That was at a point where I needed a push to move into this more personal territory. Once I got into it, I didn't really know that that breaking of the fourth wall was going to happen just because I didn't know what the poem was going to ask of me. But by the end, I had a pretty good sense of what the poem was asking of me and hopefully a decent sense of what the poem was asking of the author.
0: Well, speaking of jumps, I wanted to also ask about, you know, you mentioned with I Am 17, you talked about this poem sort of jumping the rails a bit. And I felt especially in reading that poem and the animal shelter poem, that there was a sense of jumping the rails in both and feeling very surprised as a reader with where things were going. Can you talk In either of those poems or in Water Poem 2, I see that happening in a maybe less comedic way. What does jumping the rails feel like when you're writing? And And then how do you make sure that you're ultimately, productively jumping the rails and not spiraling
1: into chaos? Productively jumping the rails and making sure you don't slide into chaos is difficult. Both those poems that I read, I wrote really fast. And I don't mean I wrote them in two days. I mean, I wrote them in like five minutes. And... I do that because it sort of lets your brain just go where it wants to go and then you get dragged along. And I think a lot of the time we find some really interesting stuff as a result of that. It took me, I think, about 300 tries to get both these poems. I would write extremely quickly I'd write five or ten poems a day and maybe once or twice a month I'd get something actually good because going back and editing that stuff is really difficult so it doesn't have to come up perfect on the first try but it does have to come out really really close and all of the ones that were bad well most of the ones that were bad I threw up because they were Chaotically unproductive. And uh, the ones that I kept were the ones that the chaos had a productive element to it. The I'm 17 poem does it to a lesser extent, but the animal shelter poem, yeah, it makes ridiculous jumps. And you actually sort of have to make those jumps in those poems because any poem that's using kid logic, it can't have any adult logic left in it. It has to go all the way. And sometimes Going all the way means completely losing track of what you're actually doing. And then, in retrospect, just getting a sense of what your brain was trying to do, autonomous of your own writing presence. That makes
0: a lot of sense, that you would need to sort of make a lot of tries and then see what sort of had the most intuitive rightness to it. I think there are a few fiction writers who I know write stories in a similar manner, that they'll write a lot of stories in a night or something. And then a lot of them don't work, you know, like Anne Beattie, I know, used to do that. And Tessa Mosvig. And those are are stories that are particularly voice-driven. It's a kind of tightrope walk that you either pull off or you topple off. And then that's, you know, you don't use that one, but it can't be labored over. It's like channeling something and then, you know, it's not there. Whereas other kinds of work you can imagine layering in clause after clause very intentionally and elegantly. But that's a different kind of writing. I'd like to ask you about music. You mentioned the trumpet, and I don't know if this is a fictional poem or not, but I'm curious if you do have a background in music and if that led to poetry at all.
1: I played the instruments growing up, but I was really, really bad. I played trumpet pretty poorly for the entirety of high school and middle school, and then I switched to French horn later on, which I did because there was no one else playing it in the band, which was good bad. It meant that all the French horn solos, everybody knew I was messing up, but it also meant most people didn't know what a good French horn sounded like. So that was a big win for me personally. I really was not very good. But yeah, music is probably my first exposure to that sort of art logic where you're just following that feeling down and where you have to discard normal logic to a significant degree. I probably would have liked music if I had practiced, but I just absolutely refused to practice trumpet or French horn. I would go home and read, usually, which is good practice if you want to become a writer, but very bad practice if you want to become a French horn player. At the end of high school, I sort of was writing poems and reading at the same time, which put me in a position where, yeah, the better I got at writing poems, the worse I got at playing the French horn or the trumpet but well it didn't even out but it was worth it being bad at French horn and getting hopefully better at writing but yeah music's very important to me just in terms of how people experience it and how it is associated even with freedom for a lot of people it is for me too but I think When I talk to students about poems and if they're really trying to sort of analyze them to death, I just give them like a brief talk about like, would you analyze a song this way? You know, have you ever actually thought about why you liked a certain song? And almost all of them say no. Just sort of culturally, I think it's actually one of the very few venues where poetic logic is being worked out in certain ways. Whenever the poems feel difficult to write that's what i try to work my way back to is that feeling of almost music logic that feeling of freedom you get by feeling something and not understanding it i think freedom is the word for that that there's freedom in not knowing what's going on there and there's freedom in understanding that however hard you look you're probably never actually going to find it i guess freedom in being aware of the mystery Sometimes the more I write, the more closed off I can get just because you work deep into the writing and you sort of can't see the sky anymore. And music has a way of opening that back up for you sometimes. It can connect really well to the part of your brain that is overanalyzing and is making it so you are looking at the work rather than looking at everything else. Well,
0: thank you, Jackson, so much for being here on Off the Page. Your first collection, Winter Stranger, is forthcoming from Milkweed Editions around the time this episode airs. So listeners should check that out. Off the Page is produced by the Stanford Storytelling Project and the Creative Writing Programme. This episode was produced by Isabel Edgar and myself, with support from Jackson Roach and Laura Davis. Thanks to Jonah Willigans for his supervision, and Christina Oblatza and Daniel Huaganga at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. For more Stanford writing, author events and workshops, visit creativewriting.stanford.edu and storytelling.stanford.edu. I'm Mark Lebowski. Thanks for listening.